Lifeguards 10A is a privately produced podcast. Any controversial statements, stances, or opinions from their producers or their guests are strictly their own and are not meant to be a representation of the public safety service or municipality that employs them. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to Lifeguards 10-8. I'm your host, Mike Hudson, and this is February's case review. RBP Sandhole Collapse with Chief Matt Matsko and Chief Aaron Tartle. I want to thank all the listeners who continue to tune in to Lifeguards 10-8. All five of you, it is duly noted. We're going to call you the Group de Cinco. First, I need to introduce my co-host, Dan Maloney. Hey guys, this should be a pretty exciting episode. This is a story that I've been looking forward to. First, I'm going to let Hudson introduce our guest because I think he knows them the best. All right, perfect, Dan. Thank you. First, I want to introduce Aaron Tartle, who is a Delaware local, Delaware native that comes from a long lineage of lifeguards, both brothers, RBP lifeguards. And I'll let him tell a little bit more about what he does and what he's all about. I appreciate you being up this time of night. What is it? Almost 9.30, dude. You should be passed out by now asleep. 30 minutes past bedtime. Hey, if it's for Mike, I can make it. boy. How you been? Good? Good, good. No complaints. Everybody's good. Family's good. Right on. And I'm going to pipe in here our next guest, which is Matt. Matt's cool. Hudson, what's up, bro? What's up, man? How are you? Chilling, bro. How you been, dude? Been great. Been great. So thanks for being here, both you guys. First of all, very stoked to have you both here. What I'd like to do right now is just have you tell us a little bit about yourselves, currently where you're at and what you're doing right now. And then we'll talk about our time over at RBP leading into this call and kind of explain the dynamic and the unique things that go on at that patrol that are probably different or similar to many other patrols across the United States. So let's start off with you, Mr. Tartle. What do you do and what are you doing? I am family-owned business here in Lewis, close to Rehoboth in Delaware. Still part-time guarding on the weekends during the summer at a local beach just north of Rehoboth. It's actually the President's Beach, correct? President right. Biden's Beach? Yep. North Shores with three quarters of a mile long beach about a mile north of Rehoboth. Different pace, but it gets me on the beach and doing what I like to. And Matt Matsko, what about you? I'm a captain in the Marine Corps. I'm a pilot. Fly C-130s, currently stationed down in good old Cherry Point, North Carolina. Been lucky. I yeah, joined the Marines uh, after six years of RBP. Been good, man. Been able to travel all over the country. Gotten to like see some different parts of the world. Pretty soon I'll be heading out on deployment. Never forget my days at RBP. I have RBP to thank for everything, honestly. So love, love how you're having me on here and because I love talking about this stuff. Just a bit of background on RBP. RBP stands for Rehoboth Beach Patrol. It's one of the oldest beach patrols in the country. I think it's the oldest one in Delaware. Famous for being not only one of the better beach patrols in the country back in the day, but also just one of the most fiercely competitive patrols, I think, in the Mid-Atlantic region. Dan, I'm going to turn this over to you right now, all right? All right. Well, well, I'm good to uh, take the helm for this episode. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. So from my understanding, early July back in 2012, you guys had an event that many lifeguard agencies haven't seen and many lifeguard agencies won't see in the future. And that is a uh, sandhole collapse. Is that correct? Yeah, we were both at the time lieutenants, both working that day and heard the call come over and both responded as fast as we could to it. All right. And previously, had you guys trained on sandhole collapses? <laughs> no, not at all. I was a second year guard at the time and I didn't even think sandal collapses were like a thing. 
Yeah, yeah that, that was something that really was off our radar where 90% of the time we're watching the water. There's signs on the beach, I believe at the time, that said no deep holes or whatever, but it wasn't something that we actually regulated or kept track of because to us, watching the water and, and making sure no one's drowning or being near jetties or deal with a lot of lost kids because it's such a busy beach, that was kind of the last thing that we would expect to happen. Mm-hmm. And I know Hudson now preaches sandhole collapse just because it's a low probability, high risk incident. For people who haven't been on the job, it can be very stressful. Even for people who have been on the job, it can be very stressful. I know, Matsko, you said you'd been working on the job for two years. And how long were uh, you on the patrol for Tarl? I ended up doing 12 years total at the time. I believe it was my 2012. That would be my fourth year. And you're a legacy too, bro. Remember that. You had your brother that was a chief on the patrol at that time. He was off that day, but and a very well-respected chief on the patrol. Yeah, I had both my brothers lifeguarded. Jake's yeah, the man. I, I Jake's mean, a Coast Guard rescue swimmer now, right? Oh, damn. Yeah, yep. He's stationed in Atlantic City. And I think that's kind of why, I mean, me personally were so caught off guard by it was here. I've been around the beach my whole life. Been a junior guard since I was five years old never have heard every story there is to be told about the beach and beach patrol from my brothers and the other guards over the years and never once had that story anything like that come up there was really no reason to even think about it i mean to me that would be like running into a bear or a tiger on the beach (laughs) because it's just not something that would happen it's not something you you would even think so before we get into the real uh, meat and potatoes, you could say, of the uh, podcast, uh, do you guys mind giving us a little background of uh, Rehoboth, how big the patrol is, how big the beach is? Total, since you're the uh, legacy, I'll let you handle this one. <laughs> yeah, all right. So Rehoboth Beach is a mile and a half of beach. At the time, I believe we had about 65 or 70 lifeguards in that stretch of mile and a half. We have 19 chairs with at least, I would say, 40 guards working. And when possible, especially weekends, we would try to have at least two EMTs working as well. So it's not a real Long Beach, like I said, we only got a mile and a half, but we had a lot of guard because of the way it was laid out with jetties and the density of people we would deal with, especially like in town, the main avenue, Wilmington Street. Uh, Little Wilmington, which is where this incident happened, we needed as much coverage as we could get. And that's why, I mean, we had a lot of people working every day down there. Mm -hmm. When I got to Rehoboth, I was amazed coming from California and then working in Florida. The difference between California and Florida beaches and then the difference between Rehoboth Beach itself is hard to explain. The crowds there are dense. When I mean dense, on a very crowded day at that area between Little Will and Baltimore, if you were walking between those streets, you could walk on people's heads if they could support you and not touch the sand at all. That's how crowded it is. It is. It's freaking it's packed. Nation's summer capital, and it definitely lives up to the hype. Like, so especially this was July, Fourth of July weekend is probably the busiest beach days for the entire summer. Like you said, you could walk across the umbrella tops from those beaches if you could. So that actually brings up my next question is, how do you guys usually get around on the beach? Are you guys always running on foot, or do you guys have ATVs, trucks, any of that? Yeah, for the guards, we pretty much just ran everywhere. The medics and uh, our captain, they had, I believe it was two Polarises that they were able to drive around and definitely super helpful for the medics. They had, you know, with the Polaris, you got the little uh, bed of it where it's, you know, anytime we had like a spinal victim, anything like that, we can kind of lay him back there pretty comfortably and safely. That was pretty much the main transportation, but sometimes the beach would get so crowded that you couldn't even drive that Polaris through the like center of town. Like I'm sure on the day of the incident, you had to clear people out 
out, but it's it, easy to get around with those. This is the time to talk about our cover down system. One of the things I think that makes Rehoboth Beach Patrol very unique, somebody might be listening to this in from a lifeguard service that uses boats and jet skis and trucks and ATVs and helicopters to get around, where in Rehoboth, the lifeguards are on foot. But the reason why it's so successful for backup is because they have a very unique system of covering down without leaving the water uncovered, still backing each other up on rescues and whatnot. Aaron, do you want to explain that real quick? Because when I got to Rehoboth, that was my favorite thing about that place. And I've taken it to my lifeguard service is because it kicks ass. Yeah. So we rely mostly because of the size of our beach width wise and not having a lot of room to drive and have a truck pull up with somebody to jump out and assist on every rescue or show up with a board. We rely more on covering down from the neighboring stands. Obviously it's called a cover down system where if you were to make a rescue or go to deal with a medical and you were sitting double or single, if your stand for whatever reason becomes empty, there's a guard coming from either both stands adjacent to you or one stand that's adjacent to you to cover your stand. And it kind of just works its way down the beach. Everybody has somebody on the stand at any given time. You still are able to provide backup and the water still being watched on the other beaches, but you're in need help. You're able to get that extra assistance. We always stressed when we would work out and everything that you don't walk anywhere, you run everywhere because that's what you're going to be doing in the time of stress and when you need to actually do it. So you practice what you're going to need. Needs Chief has their own section, which each section composed of about nine or 10 guards. And then they have, and then in within each section, they have a lieutenant and then a stand partner. You know, you got the four lieutenants and then each one has a stand partner who, whenever the lieutenant isn't there, the stand partner is the one that fills in. And then with that too, is, you know, they're going to have half of those guards are going to be veteran guards who have done at least one year, completed the actual rookie training. And then the other half are rookies. You know, every day, what they try to do before the rookies complete their training is have a veteran sit with a rookie, teach them the ways every day, you know, certain things going over saves. Because when you go through rookie training, you're everything's getting thrown at you one time. You're learning so much within those six weeks. And then you're also getting your butt kicked in workouts. So you're mentally exhausted and you're also physically exhausted. There was a respect that was given along all the guards and it was a lot of people don't like it. Sometimes it was more the beach patrons didn't like it more because they didn't, they were on the outside looking in and would see how we were uh, disciplining, how we were working out. But what they don't realize is there's a reason for that discipline and there's a reason why, you know, we're doing a hundred pushups and why we're running a mile and why we're swimming a mile and why we're doing all that is so when the time does come that you're in the face of danger and you need to rescue somebody, you have to be able to perform and know that there's a reason why everything's being done the way it is. We never asked anything that was outrageous. You know, we there was like a mutual respect between the guards and the superiors because Captain Buxton said a hundred times, don't be the weakest link. Whether you were a rookie or you were a chief, you had to be able to show up and perform every day. You know, that's just what was expected. Yeah. And I'd also say too, the people that wouldn't listen orders or had to get reprimanded they didn't make it long those guys were weeded out pretty early in the process the way we had it set up was everyone that's going to pass the rookie training and pass the rookie test were people that we wanted on patrol they earned that right they met the standards they usually had no problems with anyone after they did that training i think that's a pretty important thing when we talk about how the cover down went how communication went on that beach at the time of the incident so dan it's all yours yeah i don't even know where to begin um was a sunny day on a Wednesday after we'd all been working July 4th weekend. Everybody was tired, burnout. I think most of us had done at least one or two days of the busy days, if not July 4th. 
And remember, July 4th on a beach ends when everybody gets in their car and they start going home. For the beach patrol that's left out there, because you have to have personnel on the beach, our day doesn't end until 11, 12 o'clock midnight. Then we got to get up the next day. And the day after 4th of July, people are definitely going to the beach. It's it's a freaking nightmare, right? It, just, it doesn't stop till Labor Day. No, you're it right. Does not. We would have buses that would pull up from Wilmington and from the inner city and from Dover and just unload right at two of the gnarliest places so they could drop people off where rip currents were always prevalent. And I tell you what, if they weren't prevalent because of the objects or the dig out of the sand, they were prevalent because there were so many people in the water. They were creating their own rip currents if there was surf. I think it's time for us to jump right into the incident. You know what what we've uh, all been waiting for. My first question about the sand hole is how did it come in? Who was the reporting party? You know, how how did it come up? Aaron, I can uh, I'll start with like my point of view, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I remember I was uh I was in your section area. I was down on Henlopen about like a half mile or so from the actual site of the collapse. The way I remember it was I was just sitting on the stand with my partner. We're just shooting it, hanging out, talking. And then all of a sudden on the radio, I think it was uh, Lieutenant Quigg just called like a cover down, which we just talked about. And then from there, he just, he was kind of broken. You could tell he was super just out of it. And it was very confusing. And then at one point he goes, I need one guard from every stand to come to Little Wilmington and a medic. And he also said too to bring a shovel. Gave no other guidance. So I'm just like, all right. So I, I grab my shovel. I get down and I'm like running probably like a good, just a solid jog, you know, sweating it out. It's a pretty hot day. And it wasn't till I hit Baltimore, which about was uh, what, two or three stands away that I saw the crowd there. And that's when kind of the adrenaline kicked in. I look up on the beach because I was expecting to be something in the water. Look up on the beach and I just see a wall of people surrounding it, just surrounding the scene. And, and I sprint up and then I'm like fighting through the crowd to get up. And then from there, I just see there's already probably 15, at least 15 guards. And then probably another 10 or so volunteers just on their hands and knees and using shovels, just digging out. And I was like, what is going on? No idea. And then as soon as I saw it, I just started helping pushing back the sand farther and farther because it was just such a massive sight. And then from there, you know, kind of just jumped into the whole reality of what was going on. And I mean, we can wait to get to that part. But just talking about the initial showing up, just no idea what to expect. What what the call was, just knew something bad had definitely happened. But I do remember seeing Mike up there kind of running the show, uh, directing people what to do. And then we plenty of guards there helping out as well as uh, beach patrons assisting with everything. All right, Tartle, I assume that you probably had the uh, same experience. Yeah, I was a little bit closer than Matt, but I do remember. I remember the call coming on the radio. And like you said, at the time... I was a lieutenant. It was my fourth summer, and I had never heard anything like that come on the radio where it was bring one person from every stand and bring a shovel. And I remember Schollmeyer or Corelli, who my stand partner was that year. Matt, do you remember? You had uh, Corelli was your actual stand partner. Okay, that's what I thought. But I remember when it came over, we like fought for who was going to go because that's that lifeguard mindset was you want to go to everything and, and get involved in everything. So I remember pushing him back and jumping down first, grabbing our shovel and taking off. And since it was only three stands away, you know, I, I was moving pretty good. And Cody at the time was a experienced guard too. So I could tell from his voice that obviously something was not right because he was a pretty calm person. And for that to be his, you know, for it to get to him vocally like that kind of made me realize that something was was obviously not right. But you're still going into it blind. You get you don't know what's going on. I remember arriving. I've touched base with Cody. He was another lieutenant since he was the other lieutenant. 
to try to figure out what was going on from a supervising role, like what we needed to do. And he started to say, you know, person was under sand, his fingertip, all that was sticking out was his fingertip. That's where he was. We need to keep moving back. And then I, I remember Hudson arriving and and not to toot Hudson's horn because that's not something I would ever want to do is make Hudson look good. Ever. If anybody was going to have experience in something like this, Mike would be the one that would know how to handle it. So I looked to him for to figure out what he did. And it's kind of funny looking back at the pictures or not funny, but it, it, looking back and seeing me and him next to each other, because I will get into it more, but ended up being kind of sticking next to him and taking whatever he would tell me to do and move it and, and make it happen. And HUD, what did uh, you see when you arrived on scene? I can honestly tell you, I was pretty taken back by the whole thing because I originally started off with my mindset and Aaron and Matsko will attest to this. I didn't like running, right? Especially not soft sand, you know, lame call because I'm hot, I'm tired. And I started making the run, right? I made the run. I didn't, you know, push it 110%, but I was running. And as I started getting closer, I would see the size of the crab. I started seeing people moving quickly in and out of places and stuff. And I knew at that point it was legit. So I pushed it and arrived almost to the point where I thought I was having a heart attack. And all I saw was a giant crater with a guy's face sticking out of the sand just just a little bit where you saw the mouth, the nose, the cheeks, the forehead, the eyes, just that little bit. And people piling frantically trying to get this guy uncovered or I didn't even think it was real just looking at it for first I've never seen in all my years as a paramedic somebody with that color face that's lived and we'll talk about it later on but his face was literally black purple is what it looked like and it was because of the weight of the sand on him it was because of the people that were you know in there putting their weight trying to dig him out in the wrong direction everything was going absolutely crazy all i know was was got to manage this guy's airway and got to spread everybody out and get him out of the hole and work from the sides and that's when we started working as a patrol because now all the rbp guys started arriving and that's all you're really looking for is a senior guy is who's wearing reds give him an assignment. And that's kind of when it went down. And I didn't even do that. There were other people, I believe it was Cody that was running that call, right? Matsko? Yeah, it was. Cody was, uh, it was, I was on his uh, section of the beach at the time. And yeah, he was, he was the first responder and yeah, he, he kind of ran the whole show from there. Tartle. And then your job, you know, when you arrived on scene was just kind of, kind of pushing in there with me a little bit, but our, our big thing, remember we were trying to move everybody back, get them back to the point and dig to the outside. This was my fourth sandhole collapse in my career. So I had already been through it, but not leading it. And I didn't want to lead it because that's not my specialty at that patrol. My job was the paramedic on that scene. So I'm going to let you guys uh, continue on the lifeguard op side. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to butt in and ask, um, how did that individual get themselves uh, in that situation in the first place? This guy was on vacation. I believe he was about mid twenties, 24 or so. And an engineering, he's an engineering, engineering student. student from Oklahoma and uh, did not understand that sand is not a very strong supporter. He uh, decided to dig two holes. Uh, I believe they were between six and nine foot deep and then tunnel between them. Did not realize that the, you know, the weight of that sand wasn't structurally sound and that tunneling in sand is obviously not a good idea in terms of they're always going to collapse. There's sand does not hold its form, especially once you get down deep enough where there's water involved and that it's not a very structural 
structurally sound way to build. So he had dug these two holes on the back of the beach, connected them, um, which was part of the problems. Like we talked about it being so busy was the guards sitting on the chair. They, they never saw it and there was no way they could see it. There were so many umbrellas blocking their view. There was nothing that they could have done. It was strictly a um, responsive action. There was no nothing they could have done to prevent that at the time. Now, at the time, but now looking back, we know that the, the depths of the holes and you, that there's a reason to keep a closer eye on those things. And obviously things have changed since then to prevent this from happening again. And pulling somebody out of a sand hole is kind of like an art form, right? And you, you guys previously had, had not trained in the scenario and you guys kind of touched in on it prior, but how did you guys go about actually pulling them out for the first time? Yeah, we kind of just figured it out on our own. When we showed up, there was literally just this one guy in the middle and there was probably two or three different other circles, layers of people that were kind of, there was the people right on top of them just using their hands so they didn't cut them up with the shovel, pushing sand back and another layer behind them, shoveling it back. And it was probably, probably about, took probably took about 30 yards to get the sand completely away from them because the hole was so deep or it would just kept falling in. Yeah. So we kind of just figured it out on our own and we're just pushing it back until eventually we were able to get to them. And I do remember it was myself and Maddie Keene um, were the ones that actually grabbed him, grabbed his arms and pulled him out. I do remember Hudson, the one thing, once you stuck that device down his throat, clearing his airway, I'll never forget his, uh, his scream. The dude just started like yelled at the top of his lungs. I mean, literally just like came back from death him doing that scream that's something like i'll just i'll always remember yeah eventually we were able to push enough sand out and i think we were able to like uncover it to where it was probably like just his chest and his chest up was sticking out from there right, we we were were, so I'm, I'm looking at the pictures right now and you can find them if any of you are interested that are listening to this you can find those pictures at uh on a normal search and i believe it's hennessy right henny h-e-n-n-e-y well if you just google rehoboth beach Sand collapse or tunnel collapse, they'll come up on on there. I just see everybody working together, kids' shovels, buckets, firefighters all around us. One picture where just someone is just digging in with every piece of, of physical strength they've got, moving sand back behind. So it was just a great group of people working around us. It was a very chaotic scene. Our job and what we really focused on when we were uncovering him, and you were talking about what I stuck in his mouth was the suction unit that Captain Buxton had bought me that year because I had been begging him for two seasons to get one ever since I'd gotten there. He'd go, Hudson, what do you think we should get this year? I go, bro, we need electric suction. That was our first year with it and it saved this guy's life because we were squirting water right, Aaron, into his yep. airway and then clearing the sand out with the suction. That was the only way I could get it out because his sand, his eyes, his ears, everything was packed full of sand, packed full of sand. Couldn't dig it out with your fingers. It was packed. Yeah, it was, yeah uh, to go with Matt, with Matt was saying, I mean, it was, it was like organized chaos. And that's where the beach patrol really, um, us being in shape and us all being on the same page. I mean, everybody who showed up was ready to do something. And like I said, had not ever trained, ever thought of it, never done anything on it. I mean, obviously we were lucky and it, it went well, but I think just as tight knit as the beach patrol was that summer, it just really contributed to him, him living. And like I said, we were able to make it happen without any training. What do you say we listen to the radio traffic? This segment's going to kind of pick up where we had just cleared the patient's airway for the first time. He's taken his first couple breaths. He's still cyanotic, unresponsive, and everybody is working feverishly to get him extricated from the hole. At this time, there's nobody else on the scene except for lifeguards working this patient. This was how it went down. Beach Patrol. 
We have a, we have a scene collapse. You can hear people screaming in the background. Joe, get everybody away from the area so that nobody else falls into the ditch. Active digging going on. 25 there. Hey, 25. In route. You got any idea how deep it is or anything? All we have is he's completely under the sand. Head's under the sand. 25, your pleasure on trench. Now, let me get on the scene first. I'm going straight to the scene now. Uh, how deep it is. How, how long it take him to get here. Peter, what was the street again? Delaware you can hear this nurse in the Delaware background Avenue piping up and trying to tell us what to do. Beach Patrol, I'm a nurse. Go ahead, Beach Patrol. You are a nurse. I know there's a doctor. We have his head cleared. He is breathing. He is cyanotic prior to one. Yeah, we copy. Now, me and uh, uh, Lane being interesting. Rose, so we already haven't done it. Let's get Trooper 2 in there. This was a chaotic scene. I had totally forgotten that we had called a couple times for crowd control because things were starting to really get out of hand. If it wasn't for the first arriving fire companies, as well as some good Samaritans, things may have gone differently. Every time I listen to it, because I haven't heard it, I never heard it before. When we started doing research for the show, Aaron, you had sent me that. And I said, where did you get this? And then I didn't think too much of it. I didn't listen to it for about two hours before I ate. So I basically sat down, opened up the thing and pushed play. I started hearing the radio traffic and I immediately lost my appetite because it took me back to that. Tell you what, you can hear from the stress in everybody's voice, everybody screaming behind us. I don't remember those screams, but I don't remember anybody being out of control or or people freaking out and darting. I mean, I just don't remember that. I remember everything kind of like being in the moment and us doing our job after this was all done we never talked about it again yeah i would i would definitely say that that kind of gave me some chills listening to that like you mike I, i've never heard that until you sent it to me i do remember showing up and like hearing the screams and stuff kind of once we got working like just getting that straight tunnel vision and blocking everything out definitely brought back some uh some memories hearing that it was pretty cool yeah i would agree with matt the whole situation seemed like it took an eternity when we were doing it and then when you listen to it it doesn't sound like it was probably even that long that he was actually like under the sand it was like that tunnel vision like matt said and it going you know your adrenaline kicks in and you really just block everything out and you focus on just what you need to i realized who it was talking on the radio there mike that was lars oh yeah that was 
Lars. Oh, oh Lars. Yeah, it was oh, Lars. Looking through the pictures and that, and I see Lars in the photos, and Lars was a paramedic who has seen more than his fair share of everything, and you can even hear it in his voice a little bit because that's not a typical call, even though he's been a paramedic for I don't even know how many years, how many yeah, calls. At least he's twenty on. years at that point. Yeah, he's been a yeah, at least I between mean, fifteen and twenty. Everything years. working with the beach patrol and and has some of the the craziest stories that I've heard. Yeah, probably one of the most veteran there. of the beach patrol medics, right? Crazy coming in with my experience. I go, man, I'll be pretty experienced here. And there were just guys that had been there for 15 years that were working seasonally. 15 years seasonal lifeguards. Awesome people. Why wouldn't you? you know, why would, exactly. Job. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> so prior, you, you guys said that once you pulled him out, he was unresponsive, not breathing. And then HUD, once you started to suction him, he had uh, spontaneous respirations. What happened after that? No, he was he was breathing, but he was agonizing. He, was? okay. he wasn't taking deep, deep breaths. He still had a lot of sand in his airway. Okay. I, I remember looking at the suction catheter in the or the suction container that's in the suction unit itself, and it was just full of sand and water. And I thought to myself, that's strange. And this guy still had more stuff in his mouth, but we were able to clear it to the point where he was starting to take deeper breaths and his airway is still compromised. We don't have innovation equipment on the beach there because we're not actually functioning as ALS paramedics. So we've got to take him up to where the paramedics are waiting for us so they can manage his airway a little bit better but he's blue in that picture you can still see the color of his face he wasn't doing well he was getting better as we were moving up to the ambulance i could not believe that he was alive that face color when i arrived on scene i would have never guessed it i would have bet a million dollars he was dead yeah did he uh end up making a full recovery we never heard from him he did make a full recovery got problems with the eyes because of the sand that was in his eyes and i believe that he might have some lingering respiratory problems he did go back to school and his mother told us that he's doing well and thankful and very humble about the thing and knew that you know he's really bummed out that he made a bad decision and hopes that nobody else makes that decision and they learn from him. Good. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. Well, I think at this point, I mean, we, we probably hit with our closing remarks, Hud, if you want to do that. Really quick, we have a very short amount of time left. What do you think was the catalyst for this call going so well, Matsko? I know, Aaron, you brought up what you think is because we were so just moving like a unit. I don't know which one of you said that. Do you think ultimately that was why this call went off so well? Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that and just kind of just running towards, like Aaron said, control chaos and just going into something completely blind not aware but just you know no one's questioning anything everyone i think everyone who just showed up didn't even say a word and literally just kind of knew what to do it wasn't like someone tag on their shirt be like hey what do you want me to do it was like hey like i know where i fit in in this situation i'm gonna go here i'm gonna assist with this we're working like a, a well-oiled machine on that whole process and it's funny like aaron says like I, I think about it looking back we were talking about it and i was like man that probably went on for at least like five or ten minutes of digging and after hearing that recording i'm like damn that was actually probably pretty quick. That's a great point. Pull up the pictures while we're talking and I'm looking and I'm seeing like Ben Garbar, John Saltillo, just guys who at least two plus three years, there was no rookies on that scene. I think that just attests to kind of like RVP. I mean, granted, you can't hold against the rookies. They're still literally like four weeks in the training. They don't know. There were people there from all walks of life on the patrol that were from every kind of demographic that you could even imagine. You had people there that hadn't been there for very long, like myself. You had people there that were veterans, very experienced, but none of us has experienced this thing together. We didn't train for it. And it went off so well is because I think we were just, because we're lifeguards, period. And I'm stoked to have been a part of it with you guys. I'm very proud to have been a part of it. And it's something I'll never forget. And it's shaped the way I've been doing my training with my guys. We continue to train in this. And every single time I bring up the sandhole collapse and I, I'm sure most of my lifeguards think that I'm exaggerating. I truly was not exaggerating. Was I, Dan? You could tell the truth here. No, you, you honestly were not. No. That's a first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so after all of this gets said and done, we did not debrief on this, which is the one thing I would say we should have probably done. We should have we should have had a formal debrief in the patrol, probably done a hot wash. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I do remember we got back to the shack and, you know, there was kind of some blank faces. Just people were a little shaken up after it. Definitely tell people. Uh, maybe I told a girl or two at the bar about it. But other than that, <laughs> never really kind of. I mean, as a patrol, we never really debriefed, but I will say Hudson, the summers after that, every time, even when you weren't there full time, you would come once in a while, we would go through that training. I mean, through that experience, would have been prepared for another one. You know, the stars aligned for this guy to survive. That was another one of those missions called the 300 second mission. You have five critical minutes to intervene and stop something or correct something from happening before there is just astronomical risk for a sentinel event. 300 seconds to get that guy out. We should be training like that all the time on a lot of our operations for the first 300 seconds of that operation which are usually the most critical to airway breathing, circulation, and actually somebody surviving and walking out of a hospital and going home to Oklahoma to live out the rest of his life and have a good life. Well yeah, said. I'm just, I'm just glad we're able to, to talk about this and it has a, a happy ending. It's all too often. I mean, I remember you saying all the, it was a sand hole rescue and not a sand hole recovery. So, you know, it, it's good that we were able to sit here and talk about it and make it through the summer with no other incidents. It was a one life saved, but who knows how many lives were saved because of it. I can honestly say, you know, any hole under over two foot deep became a priority to every lifeguard on Rehoboth Beach Patrol because hole of patrol. this. Hole patrol, baby. Yeah, we literally put in, you know, part of our patrol at, you know, when you were going to lunches with dorm workouts. You didn't go buy a hole and not fill it in or talk to the people, dig in and explain to them the dangers of it. Where July 5th, that was something you'd walk by and not even think twice about. Ask Dan how crazy I am about deep holes on the beach and if the lifeguards miss them. Dan, does Mike tell you he wants to fill your hole? (laughs) (laughs) More times than not. Uh, oh man! Uh, did you want me to word that differently, Mike? Nah, <laughs> that's perfect, dude. I'll be able to edit right around that. Meanwhile, this is live stream to everybody. <laughs> All right, so yeah, let's close this up. I just want to give a huge shout out to the uh, Rehoboth boys for coming on to the show. I appreciate you guys uh, sharing your experience. Hopefully, the listeners got something out of it. Yeah, hey, thanks for welcome. having. Uh, appreciate for having us, guys. It's it's been awesome catching up. Definitely, always a pleasure to just talk about RPP stuff. Well, you two aren't going anywhere yet. I got to say goodbye to you. Thank you for talking about this call and doing this debrief. I think it was beneficial to all of us. might be beneficial to anybody who's listened to this to always expect the unexpected, to train as hard as you can, really count on your fellow lifeguards to back you up. That's it. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Uh, Listeners, you guys can always contact us on our webpage, lifeguards10-8.com. You can hit the contact us tab in the upper right corner and you can write us any questions, comments, or concerns, and we'll be uh, sure to address it. Email you back, I guess, or Dan will, or I might, or (laughs) one of us will. Anyway, this is a long email. (laughs) I do know an email. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Aaron Tartle and Matt Matsko. You guys are the best. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. And of course, my co-host, Dan Maloney. I'd like to remind everybody to take care of yourselves, take care of each other, be safe, educate, prevent, rescue, resuscitate. Lifeguards 10-8, we're 10-7.